The following is a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church. Good morning again, Grace Family Church. I feel particularly honored to be able to preach God's Word for our benefit this morning. I was thinking about last week. Last week we were kind of holding out until the last possible moment to decide whether we would gather or not. The truth is we did not want to cancel our gathering, but in the end we just felt that, you know, um, the chance we would take with an unknown amount of rain coming and people coming out this way and getting stranded and Patrick and Jade driving from Mandeville to come, we were like, ah, better that we just love each other by canceling. But I was thinking about it and I was thinking about the fact that, you know, there are many believers around the world who have that type of uncertainty every Sunday because, you know, the situation they're in, maybe because of persecution or opposition, you know, they're meeting secretly and they don't know if they'll be able to meet. And I just think, you know, we, when we have these moments, can be grateful for the freedom and the fact that, generally speaking, our gatherings are uninterrupted. Uh, as we continue to remember others in prayer. I'd like you to turn with me to Psalm 20. We've been in the Psalms for a couple of weeks, and our thought is to continue in the Psalms for several more before launching into Ecclesiastes. Now, I've come to love the Psalms, even though I'm still learning to appreciate them. They are wild and fertile territory. I don't know how you feel about the Psalms, but I want to serve you as a good guide today. So let me usher you into the landscape of Psalm 20 with this quotation from the scholar Christopher Ash. The Psalms not only train us how to pray, they gradually reshape our affections and our aversions so that we love what we ought to love and hate what we ought to hate. No, that's something we need, isn't it? To have our affections and our aversion shaped by God's word and not merely by our personality or our preferences. So, listen closely and expectantly as I read Psalm 20. This is God's holy word. Psalm 20. To the choir master, a psalm of David. May the Lord answer you. In the day of trouble, may the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us. When we call. 
Two Mondays ago, as you'll recall, was the funeral for Queen Elizabeth II who was, that was held in London. Now, I don't know if you paid much attention to it. Now, my wife kind of had it going, you know, on one of her screens as she was working that morning. Um, but whether you are intending to tune in or not, I'm pretty sure that you, like me, could not escape the press coverage even if you wanted to. Now, I, my, my, my habits in terms of Going online is, I'll go online and I'm going to check my Chelsea fan site, I'm going to check Sky Sports, I'm going to check BBC News, just to round it off well, you know, just so you get some general news and not just sports. Even my sports sites, their lead story was the Queen's funeral. Now, her death brought to the surface widely differing sentiments towards her personally and towards the British monarchy as an institution which is unsurprising in our nation that has been so marked by colonialism, by the legacy of slavery, and lingering dissatisfaction with how contemporary royals have postured themselves towards the past. Now, I won't get into my own wrestling with that, because that would be a different sermon altogether. What I found to be quite striking, though, were the images of the pomp and ceremony of the funeral itself, the procession of Navy officers pulling the Queen's coffin on the state gun carriage, the crown jewels resting on the coffin, the choir lining the narrow aisle in Westminster Abbey as she was born to what looked like this gilded altar underneath the stained glass windows. And then after the service, just the crowds, this throng lining the three miles of Windsor Castle's long walk as the procession passed. But alongside the visual spectacle, the focal point of the funeral itself was striking. Even in a country as secular as Britain has become, even with the presence of invitees, and I looked at BBC and they, they had all the invitees and the positions of everybody, you know, even with the presence of invitees who were representative of diverse religious communities, the Queen's funeral was a Christian one. It wasn't just scripture-filled, it was Christ-focused. The hope of the resurrection, the hope that we sang of earlier in New Again, that because Christ is risen from the dead, all those in him shall also rise from the dead. That hope was declared openly at that funeral, and that hope was the Queen's hope. That Monday, for a few moments, whether we were drawn to it or repulsed by it, we got a glimpse of what it looks like for a nation to be focused on their Queen. Now, if you grab hold of that glimpse and let it transport you back 3,000 years in time, you'll find yourself in a similar scene in Psalm 20. The original setting for this psalm was a gathering of God's people in Jerusalem at the sanctuary. Uh, it was an ancient church service with sacrifices and prayers and singing. This occasion was not a funeral, but a time of national crisis. In that moment, the whole nation was focused not just on their God, but on their king. Now, I would forgive you if you're already asking the question, what does any of this have to do with us? That's a question that we need to ask, but in the right way and at the right moment. That's not where we should begin, though. We begin by acknowledging that in Psalm 20, God has given us a song that is not about us. It resists our, attempt to, our attempts to quickly personalize it. If we're going to sing it, we need to be willing to sing about someone else, to pray for someone else. Some of the moments that have the potential to shape us most profoundly are not focused on us. 
So it seems the best way to receive what God has for us in this psalm is to sit under it, paying close attention to how it instructs us, bearing in mind Jesus' words in Mark 4, 24 and 25. Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. So we're going to listen to this song then in two stanzas. First, we'll listen to the congregation praying with the king in verses 1 to 5. Then we're going to listen to them trusting in the Lord in verses 6 through 9. So those two stanzas will act as two vehicles conducting us through this terrain. So then, praying with the king, verses 1 to 5. When it comes to the scriptures, it never hurts to observe what's obvious. The strong beats of this stanza are petitions. Look at the verses as I walk you through them. These petitions punctuate this song over and over again. In five verses, seven times we hear, May. Then we hear it once more, again, at the end of the song in verse 9. And look at the text. All the parallel lines in the first five verses are petitions also, echoing or expanding on the requests. Now, look at the text again and pay attention to the pronouns. You, over and over again in this stanza. May the Lord answer you in verse 1a. May he send you help, verse 2a. And your, over and over. May he remember all your offerings, verse 3a. May he grant you your heart's desire, verse 4a. Even when we look beyond this stanza in verses 1 to 5, there's only one singular first-person pronoun, I, in verse 6, and a couple of we's as we move from verse 5 through to the end of the song. You see, this pattern pushes us to recognize that this song is not in the first place about the singers themselves. It involves them, and, and as we'll see, it's meant to bring them into blessings. But it is not about them in a direct sense. So if we are to sing this song, which is what we're aiming to, to get to eventually, we have to stop focusing on ourselves. Now, I don't know about you, but most of the prayers that come naturally out of me are about me. You know, my needs, my situation, my concerns. Even in our relationship with God, we can be our constant focus. And it's not that we shouldn't pray about our needs. Jesus teaches us to do so when he instructs us uh, in what we normally refer to as the Lord's Prayer. But in his instructions, I don't come first. In the first place, the Lord's Prayer uses collective pronouns, or and us. Have you ever noticed that? Our Father, who art in heaven. You know? So it's using collective pronouns. And what's that, what's that, that, that's going to do for us is going to pull our eyes from navel-gazing to look around at our brothers and sisters and pray for them even as we pray for ourselves in Jesus' name. And on top of that, the first half of that prayer concerns God's honor and God's will and God's kingdom. That precedes petitioning for ourselves. This psalm is singing in the same key as the first half of the Lord's Prayer. Yet there's something peculiar here. In the Lord's Prayer, we pray for your will, as in God's will, to be done. Here in Psalm 20, the you is another human being. The you they're praying for is the king. That becomes complete, completely clear at the end of the song if you look at verse 9. O Lord, save the king. This is a nation focused on their king. 
This psalm led, led God's people to pray for protection, help, support, and victory in battle on behalf of the king. They're praying for God to fulfill all of the king's plans and to grant him his heart's desires. So, do you find that uncomfortable? Yes, I do too, Shelley. Very much so. That's just weird. I mean, it's one thing to pray for God's glory and his will. It's an entirely different thing to join in with this kind of king-centered song. Oh Lord, save the king. That sounds like the British national anthem that we've been so glad to get rid of. That's likely because the British national anthem borrowed these words that are echoed several times in the Psalms. So what are we supposed to do with this song? You know, some people in reading the Bible, you know, they just kind of skip the parts that they just can't figure out. And it's just like, all right, I don't know what to do with that psalm. So I'll find one that has a lot of eyes and clearly I can take for myself. That's not what we're supposed to do with this song. But are we supposed to use this to pray for Charles III? A lot of us don't even like Charles and that goes beyond even the Diana thing, you know. There there are historical reasons why we in the Caribbean have little reason to trust or think highly of the British monarchy. Probably about 16 years ago, I was having lunch with a facilitator at a preaching seminar I was attending. He has since become my friend. His name is Mark Maynell, and he preached here about two and a half years ago, for, for those who are here for that. The key detail in this story is that Mark is British. Over lunch, our conversation ran in several directions, but at a point he said something that I've never forgotten. And it was a kind of passing comment in the midst of conversation. So he said, and this is not verbatim, that he's found that Americans think really highly of democracy, but he is just not that enamored with it. He'd take a benevolent king any day. I thought it was the weirdest and most ridiculous idea. Why would you think any good could come from one person ruling over all of us with power that can't be checked by voting them out in a few years if we don't like how they're ruling? If you've read the narrative of the Old Testament, you may remember that while Samuel was a judge of Israel, the people rebelliously demanded a king so that they could be like the other nations around them. Now, Samuel, for his part, was inclined to take this personally, but God told him, they have not rejected you, but rejected me from being king over them. God, so God gave them a king with a huge warning label slapped on the side. Your king is going to oppress you. Oh, he'll fight your wars, but he'll do so by drafting your sons as soldiers. And he'll take your daughters to work in his big house, and he'll take the best of your harvest each year. And when he does that and you cry out to me, on that day I will not listen to you. So I was right then. Monarchy's a bad idea, right? Not so fast. What Mark said about a good king actually makes complete sense, biblically speaking. But we need to reach a little further back. When God confirmed his covenant with Abraham in Genesis 17, verse 6, he made this promise. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. Deuteronomy 17, 14 and 15, and 18 to 20 give more detail on God's plan. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. 
And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes, and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So, when we get to the people of Samuel's day, while their motive was wrong, their request actually wasn't. God had always planned for them to have a king. In his kindness, he wanted for them to have a king who loved him and feared him and obeyed him and led the people to do the same. And here's what becomes clear as you make your way through the Psalms. Though they acknowledge the wreckage caused by the failure of David's descendants, David who penned this particular psalm, they also hold fast to this hope. God's plan for redeeming his fallen creation depended on his establishing a good king descended from David who would fight his people's battles, conquer their enemies, and ultimately rule over the world in righteousness and bring blessings to the nation. So God's plan is to have one person ruling over us all with power that cannot be checked by voting them out. Here in Psalm 20, these prayers reflect God's plan. Here's something I want you to see. In Psalm 20, the people are not just praying for the king. They are praying with him. Look at the end of verse 5. The king is a man of prayer. He's a righteous worshiper of God. In keeping with the Old Testament law, he brought before God the offerings that were stipulated as acts of worship and atonement for sin, offerings which expressed his faith in God. What that means is that this psalm presumes that the king is a godly man. The people's passionate and vociferous support then is not merely a response to his office, it's a response to his character. This is the commentator Derek Kidner. In this one man, the whole people see themselves embodied and their national life sustained. That second part of Kidna's comment is also something we need to recognize. What has evoked these prayers is a threat. Verse 1 speaks of the day of trouble. And as the psalm goes on, there's this imagery of banners in verse 5 and chariots and horses in verse 7, making it clear that, that what is in front of them, what's looming in front of them is a military threat to Israel. No, that happened over and over in Israel's history. So we have every reason to think that though David probably wrote this psalm in response to some particular threat he faced, he wrote it so that God's people would have words to pray for his sons who would sit on the throne after him in their own day of trouble. Now we can make some more sense of this stanza. In our modern day, we sing songs about heroes. Where I hear that most is when I'm watching the English Premier League as the fans sing the names of the players that they support. But the singers of Psalm 20 aren't just fans of the king. It's not that they simply want their favorite to win. Their fate is bound up with his. If he falls in battle, then their enemies would rule over them. Their joy is therefore wrapped up in his salvation. He is their protector. And this isn't misplaced dependence as if they needed to free themselves from such monarchical thinking. This was both their situation and God's design. It was God's idea that his people be ruled over by a shepherd king, a protector and provider. Now, 
It's not the theological equivalent of rocket science to connect the king to Jesus. He is David's greater son. He is our good shepherd and our benevolent king. More so than anyone before him, his people's salvation or salvation depended on his success. When Jesus went into battle at the cross, our fate was bound up with his. It is true of every other monarch in human history that their hearts are both selfish and deceptive. He is the only human being of whom we could truly and safely pray, may God grant you your heart's desire. We pray like this psalm when we pray to the Father with Jesus, your kingdom come, your will be done. Because that is exactly what Jesus wants. The peculiarity of this prayer from our perspective is that some, in, in some significant senses, it has already been answered. I was thinking about this. Remember when we were going through Mark, for those of you who are here, and we looked at those details of the Garden of Gethsemane scene. And one of the things we recognized is that in this moment of need, Jesus asked his disciples to pray with him. Here he was emotionally at least facing his day of trouble. And he was like, pray with me, guys. And we remember what they did. Firstly, they fell asleep. You know, uh, just, you know, late night thing, you know, these guys had eaten a good Passover meal and they are out. And he comes back and he's kind of encouraging them and challenging them to pray with him. And eventually, the physical trouble arrives as Judas brings the soldiers to arrest him. And what do the disciples do? They run, turn tail and run. It's fascinating to me that those who surrounded the king in that moment were not praying like Psalm 20. Yet it seems that God had ordained prayers for centuries that really were for Jesus. What we understand when we read the Gospels is that Jesus faced his day of trouble. And that God accepted his offering. The images of sacrifice and military triumph come together in Hebrews 10, 12-14. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus protected us from the wrath that we deserve. He canceled the debt of sin we owed and disarmed and shamed our spiritual enemies that stood as our accusers and oppressors. And amazingly, our king still prays for us, interceding for us in our weakness and advocating for us in our sin. Whenever we confess our sin to God through Christ, do you know what we're saying effectively? Effectively, we're saying, may you, Father, remember our king's offering and regard with favor his sacrifice. That's what we're saying, because that is our only plea. So, Isn't all this then reason to shout for joy over his salvation? That petition in verse 5, this time, uh, sorry, that that is the petition in verse 5. This time, the singers are praying for themselves. They're praying, may we rejoice. May we have joy because of your salvation. I'm, I'm convinced that we need to be reminded of his salvation, to be reminded of the gospel all the time, because Jesus' work can easily slip towards the back of our minds and hearts, crowded out by daily life in this fallen world. Yet isn't it reason to wave Jesus' banner, to wave his flag, to set up our banners in the name of our God? I love how naturally this psalm frames evangelism. 
If we're praying with the king, if we're caught up in his victory, won't we talk about it? I mean, I, I know as a sports fan, it, it takes a lot of resistance for me not to talk when my team wins. You know, you know, you get very quiet when your team loses. You know, as Yvonne nodding at the back there, he knows what it's like. You, you, you can't go out and, and wear the jersey with any pride when your team loses. When your team wins, you're just like strutting your stuff and you know, knowing people are jealous of you. <laughs> no, it's true. I mean, <laughs> as I worked my way through this psalm, this is a question that came to me. What are we actually caught up with? You know? If we're not caught up with our king's victory, what is it that we are caught up with? You see, this song invites us to learn that, to learn to be emotionally caught up with the king's victory. What they were looking forward to in faith is what we get to do, to rejoice in the king's victory. So, so this psalm calls us then to focus our attention on our king and to rejoice in his salvation, lifting our eyes above our daily lives, the details of our daily lives, which can feel so all-consuming, remembering that God answered these prayers in the life and work of Jesus. And he's still answering this prayer. And singing like this has an effect on us as worshipers. As the original singers prayed in this way, their hearts were strengthened, their hopes were secured, and their joy rose even before the battle was won. How much more for us who live in the aftermath of Jesus' victory at the cross? So here's the key thing. Our emotional state can be shaped by rejoicing in this salvation and praying with our King for the parts that are still yet to come. That's what we're doing this morning as we sang, when we see your face. We're looking ahead for that day that was promised, when his victory will be consummated. So God has given us this song so that as we learn to sing it, we'll be transformed by the joy that comes from investing all of our hopes in the victory of our king. Now, if these first five verses in this psalm demand a king like Jesus, then this second stanza is stamped with his imprint. A likeness that we recognize because he's unveiled in the New Testament. So let's move then from praying with the king to trusting in the Lord in verses 6 through 9. So look in your Bibles again with me at verse 6. Verse 6 is the high point of this psalm. Prayer is undoubtedly the output of the song. We've already begun to see how we can join in with this song and be shaped by it. But if we're going to do so in the right way, we need to lift the hood and see what's driving these petitions. In verse 6, we see the engine of convictions that's producing and sustaining these requests. As this stanza begins, it's as if the choir catches their breath while the song is carried briefly by a lone voice, strong and unwavering, defiant in the face of the threats facing the nation. Now I know, now I know, that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Now, we can't say with certainty who is singing at this point. It might be the king himself who, having received some assurance from God, now articulates his conviction. It might be another leader, perhaps a priest, affirming what's true. In any case, what's said here is the conviction that powers these prayers on behalf of the king. In the first place, it is a conviction about God's promises. 
The Lord saves his anointed. This is why victory is assured and joy is anticipated. Kings in Israel were designated by anointing, that is, oil being poured over their heads. And in this is, is the equally important other side of this equation. The Lord saves his anointed. So this only works if the king who is praying is in fact the Lord's chosen king. If you know the history of Israel, you know that there are several stories where kings in Israel or Judah went out to battle confidently, expecting the Lord to save them and not knowing that the Lord was leading them to judgment rather than victory. So we have a promise and a dilemma in one. And that's going to lead us to Jesus via Psalm 2. Psalm 2 sets the program for the theme of kingship in the entire collection of the Psalms. It describes a global conspiracy against the Lord and against his anointed. With the rebellious world banding together against him, God is entirely unfazed. In verse 6 of Psalm 2, he says, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So as you see, this language bleeds into Psalm 20. King, Zion, anointed. In Psalm 2, God installs his chosen king and invites him to pray. He invites him to ask him for victory and dominion over the nations. That word anointed became the title Messiah, or in Hebrew, or in Greek, the title Christ. So verse 6 is saying that God himself is Christ-centered, which of course is to the praise of his glory. Think about how Jesus is unveiled in the Gospels and Epistles as God's anointed. We saw that way back when we were preaching through Mark, which starts the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. All pictures picking up from Psalm 2. Mark quickly moves from John the Baptist preparing the way of the Lord to Jesus' baptism, which functioned as his anointing with the Holy Spirit and came with a declaration from heaven echoing Psalm 2, You are my beloved Son. If that isn't enough, here's what's weird and wonderful about Psalm 20. In our English-speaking world, we generally do not name our children Jesus out of respect for the name. But in Jesus' day, his was a commonly given name. Does anybody remember what it means? Well, remember from here on. It means Yahweh saves. That's what Jesus' name means. Yahweh saves. Every time the psalm was sung over the centuries, it whispered Jesus' name. The Lord saves. He is the embodiment of God's salvation. And the promise here was that in his case, God would intervene in a clear, miraculous way so that everyone would know that it was God who did the saving. Now, that happened several times in the stories uh, of Old Testament kings. Uh, those stories were captured in the, in the books of Kings and Chronicles. But all of those amazing tales were merely shadows of a greater deliverance to come. If you have not trusted in Jesus, and you've wondered at times, come on, what's all the hype about? Here's your answer in Psalm 20. God promised to save and support his chosen king. Jesus is unquestionably that king, demonstrated through his entire life and even in his death, but in particular in his resurrection from the dead. The petition of verse 9 is a weighty one, and gloriously so for those of us who trust in Jesus. O oh Lord, save the king. May he answer us. May he, the king, answer us when we call. Salvation is exclusively found in Jesus because Jesus is exclusively God's anointed king. He is the only one who we can call on and he promises to answer us when we call. 
Ultimately, the only hope we have to save us from death and judgment is in the salvation that God worked for his king. Because Jesus rose, we can be sure that all those who are in him will also rise from the dead. Why? Because they have been joined to Jesus and the Lord is committed to his king. He will grant him the desire of his heart. You want to hear that desire expressed by Jesus himself? Listen then to John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. We can only be with him where he is if we too rise from the dead. Yet, as we saw in Philippians, resurrection is not just a prize at the end of the journey of this life, but a power that bleeds back into this age and transforms our experience of every hardship. All of this is why it matters so much that you put your trust in Jesus. And we'd be glad to help anybody who has been journeying towards Jesus and you're not sure you're at that point where you've trusted Jesus. We'd be glad to help you to understand this better. So please don't hesitate to ask. For those of us who are his people, we must constantly remind ourselves that as far as salvation goes, God is Christ-centered. Everyone we interact with each day, the neighbor you say hi to or don't, the cashier whom you pay for your lunch, your lecturer or classmate, your doctor, the person who cleans the bathrooms is either one of Jesus' people or his enemy. Jesus, our shepherd king, is committed to saving his own from among his enemies. In John 10, 16, he said, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. When we pray this psalm, when we pray that God would fulfill all of Jesus' plans, we need to recognize that we are called to be a part of the answer to that prayer. One of the things we're praying is that God would help us to grow in faithfully sharing about our King with others. We're nearing the end of this song. And in the remaining verses, the whole congregation sings of their confidence in God. In verses 7 and 8, they boldly declare before the battle the contrast between us and them. Chariots and horses may seem quaint to us, but they were technological game changers when it came to war in those days. A foot soldier stood little chance against chariots thundering towards him. The contrast here is between trusting God and trusting human resources. So, you know, we have to move that image forward from chariots and horses. I'm pretty sure if I came to your house, nobody has a chariot sitting anywhere there. Um, you know, I, I, I'm going to guess that nobody has a horse either. But the point is, we have a lot of things that we trust in, don't we? All the things we build for ourselves, all our abilities, all our human resources. If you're here when we preach Philippians 3, I hope you detect how that text echoes this one. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, put no confidence in ourselves or our resources. But what does it mean to trust in the name of the Lord our God? For the original singers, the name of God was identical to his attributes or his nature. It meant to trust in who God had revealed himself to be through his words and his actions. Alan Ross is going to help us to just access this concept. The congregation was therefore making their appeal to a God whose reputation of delivering his people from distress 
was a great part of their shared experience. They based their prayer on the name, and this called to mind the nature of God and thereby encouraged even greater confidence. But observe these verses a little bit more. The contrast is not just between what we and they trust in. It's between different outcomes. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. That imagery, if you adjust it slightly, it sounds a lot like what Jesus taught at the end of Matthew 7 about two houses being built that both weather storms and one collapses and the other stands. Here's what you need to see in this psalm. Trusting in the name of the Lord brings security even before the battle has played out. But here's a challenge. As believers, we can misdirect our trust while aiming to trust in the name of the Lord. We can think that what God is calling us to trust in ultimately is, is the track record of faithfulness. Sorry, I'll say that again. Here, here's, where, here's the misdirection we can, we can move towards. We can think that what God is calling us to trust in ultimately is the track record of his faithfulness in our own lives rather than in redemptive history. So walk with me carefully with this. So what happens is we start to catalog and try to interpret the experiences that we have been through. Kind of gathering the dark pieces of pain and loss and the brighter pieces of joy and blessings, trying as it were to assemble a puzzle in our minds without a picture guiding us and without knowing if we even have all of the pieces in an attempt to figure out if God truly loves me. Dane Ortland, in his magnificent book, Deeper, speaks with pastoral wisdom to those who have ever thought, my life disproves the love of Christ. He says this, if you are having thoughts like that as you hear of Christ's love, I want you to know that you're looking at the wrong life. Your life doesn't disprove Christ's love. His life proves it. What it means to trust in the name of the Lord our God is to fix our eyes, to fix our hope on our king who went to war to protect us at the cost of his own life. By suffering for us, he has shown us God's nature, God's heart, and his love. Ortland continues, Your suffering does not define you. His does. You endured pain involuntarily. He has endured pain voluntarily for you. As we learn to sing this song, as, as, as we grow in trusting in the name of the Lord our God, as he has revealed himself in the person and work of Jesus, we will stand secure no matter what life throws at us. Now that doesn't mean that we will not feel overwhelmed at times. It doesn't mean that we will not lament and grieve sometimes. But by God's grace, even in the turbulence, we will hold on to this promise. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Now, there's so much more here, but this is more than enough for one sitting. Think back with me for a moment on the funeral of Queen Elizabeth. Picture in your mind's eye a small child, maybe five or six, like one of those that is buzzing around here uh, during, uh, with, when we gather, standing among the crowd as the procession passed through the queen's coffin. Now this child is aware in her own way, even at her age, that this is a deeply solemn moment. 
Quietly, she asks her mother, Mommy, what does this all mean? Her mother, a great admirer of the queen, replies, She was our queen. She devoted her whole life to the service of her people with character, faithfulness, and steadfastness. It was her life and her work to be the best of Britain. And I'm not making these phrases up either. These are phrases given in tribute to the queen at different points. No, leap back to the days then of Judah's kings and picture a little child with her father among the crowd at the sanctuary in that moment that was serious yet not solemn but joyful as the congregation lifted their voices confidently in, in the prayer and battle song of Psalm 20 with great expectation. The child tugs at her father's hand to get him to lean down and ask, Daddy, what does all this mean? He, with smiling eyes, looks down at her and then back to where the king stands in the center of the throng and then back at her and answers, He is our king. He devoted his whole life to our service with character, faithfulness, and steadfastness. It is his life and his work to be the best of us and to fight our battles. Here's what's amazing. We today, gospel citizens of God's heavenly kingdom, can say much the same without a single caveat about our king, Jesus. He devoted his whole life to our service with character, faithfulness, and steadfastness. It was his life and his work to be the best of us, the embodiment of all we aspire to be and all of our longings, and to fight our battles. He trusted his father to save his anointed, to answer him from his holy heaven, and fought our enemies, sin, Satan, and death. And unlike the kings of old, dying was how he won. And the resurrection he experienced was the saving might of God's right hand. God saved the king. And because of Jesus, we rise and stand upright in every circumstance that we face, whether it looks on the surface to be success or failure, as we await his glorious return, the culmination of his victory, when every enemy will be placed under his feet. While we wait, we pray what was and is his heart's desire, that God's kingdom come and that God's will be done on earth as it is in heaven. While we wait, we pray, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. And as we pray with the King and trust in the Lord, our priorities and our emotions are transformed even while we continue our sojourn in this world that is aching for renewal. So what does this song mean? When all our hopes are invested in the victory of God's King, we can shout for joy and stand secure. When all our hopes are invested in the victory of God's King, we can shout for joy and stand secure. That's what it meant for the original singers. And it means the same but more so for us who get to look back to see how our king's prayers were answered at the cross and in the resurrection, even while we wait for the consummation of his victory. This song is for us, believers. It pulses with joy and confidence that will secure our hearts in the midst of the vulnerability we face each day. When we sing it, we are reminded not to trust in our own resources, but to look at his salvation and shout for joy and to prayerfully and confidently look forward to his return. We are in him and he fought and won for us. When all our hopes are invested in the victory of God's king, we can shout for joy and stand secure. Let's pray.
You have just listened to a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church.